And let's jump into our study this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. As we're studying our way through the life and ministry of Jesus, we found ourselves at one of his most famous messages, what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And last week we studied what's known as the Beatitudes, and the word explains itself. It is attitudes that we are to be. It is the Beatitudes, nine attitudes that those who follow Jesus need to embody. And the Beatitudes cover really the first 16 verses of Matthew 5 and describe the character of the believer. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount deals with the conduct that grows out of that character. And over the next few weeks, we're going to see Jesus lay out the laws that govern his kingdom. This is a big deal because this is Jesus, the author of the Bible, unpacking the Bible for us. He's going to unpack all the Old Testament laws, the Ten Commandments, and he's going to say, let me explain to you what these all really mean. It would be like having a Bible that has the notes on the bottom, but the notes on the bottom were written by Jesus Christ. That's what's going to be going on here. This is the highest ethical teaching in the Bible, the highest standard of ethics that have ever been taught. And as we learned last week, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, those who are following him. The crowd is listening in, but Jesus isn't speaking to them. They're eavesdropping, basically. It's important because in verse 13, where we're going to start, It begins with the word you. Jesus says you, and you need to know that the you is referring to his disciples, not any and every person, his disciples specifically. So let's read verse 13, Matthew 5. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And I kept getting distracted when I was studying this because I kept thinking of French fries and the delicious taste of salt. But once I got on track, I found that there's several explanations a lot of people like to talk about. People like to say things like, you know, salt makes you thirsty, so our lives should make people thirsty for Jesus. Or salt preserves and heals, so our lives should preserve and, and heal the world. But while those things are good, I think they're stretching a little bit because Jesus tells us specifically the analogy that he's making here. He says specifically that he's addressing the flavor side of salt. And the thing about salt, glorious salt, is that it only takes a small amount to change the taste of whatever you put it on or into, right? We we all know that. And so it only takes a small amount to affect something in a big, big way. And the idea is that when we're a disciple of Jesus, wherever we are, the atmosphere should be a little bit different because we're there. It's not saying wherever you go, you need to carry a carton that you can stand on and preach. It just means you should make a difference simply by your presence. Your attitude, your corner of the woods, your little part of the world should be different because you're there. If you were removed from your workplace, it should matter and make a difference to the spiritual atmosphere, the emotional atmosphere. It should make a difference. I think a great way to put this is to say, if you were to tell someone that you've worked with for five years that you're a believer... Their response shouldn't be, no way, come on, you? Wow, I, I never, I mean, I mean, I never would have thought you, but wow, okay, sure. The idea is it should be different because you're there, not because you're wearing a Jesus t-shirt, but because you have the Holy Spirit in you, and so the Holy Spirit is wherever you are with whatever group of people you are with. And then Jesus makes the point that if the salt loses its flavor, it's really good for nothing. It's useless. He's not talking about salvation here, but he's saying the believer is not useful to the kingdom who has no impact or effect on anything or anyone. 
And again, he's not talking about notches in the belt for evangelism, you know, like uh, uh, this person to Christ, this person. He's not talking about that. He's talking about being consciously aware that you represent Jesus all the time, wherever you are. You're a representative of Christ. Here's what we need to take from this. It's your first fill-in, that we are called to live our lives on mission. We're called to live our lives on mission. You know, every day matters. And every day we're either building up our witness or we're tearing down our witness. Every day we're either a credit to the gospel or a hindrance to the gospel. We're called to live in such a way that when we have the opportunity to share Jesus with somebody, they've already seen him in our lives. And we're simply explaining to them, this is what you've seen in my life. Those things where I just seem to be different, this is why Jesus is in my life. The message is this, that we're called to live godly lives that honor God. We're called to pray for the lost, to pray for specific people, to to ask God to use us to reach them, to pray for opportunities, and then step out in faith when God creates those opportunities for us. And if you're living with a desire to be like that, then I promise that you are being effective. If you long to be used by God, if you're praying for people, if you're being intentional, then you're being salt. But Jesus wants us to know very directly, listen, if if you go out into the busyness of the world and you just forget where we're all going, that we're eternal beings that are going to live forever in one of two places, you get caught up in work and friends and life, and it's not even on your radar that you represent the kingdom of God. He says, "You've, you've lost your flavor. And you're saved, but in terms of the kingdom, you're not really useful in any shape or form. What Jesus is saying doesn't mean we're supposed to go stand on street corners and preach. In fact, the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians. He says, we urge you, brethren, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. So the picture here is we're called to live humble, honorable, godly lives, to go about our daily business while never forgetting that we represent God. Paul would call us ambassadors of Christ. If we do that, we'll be effective. Then Jesus gives another analogy in verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So when we live a godly life, it is a public and convincing testimony to other people of the saving power of Jesus. When they look at our lives and they see God, they see Jesus, even if they don't know his name, but they can see him in us, that's the most convincing testimony we can give. That is a more convincing testimony than any intellectual argument for the faith that we could ever make. Because nobody can argue with the fact that you and I are different. Nobody can argue with the way we actually live. Nobody can invalidate that. Because they're seeing it with their own two eyes. It's also a reminder to never be ashamed of Jesus or the gospel. People are supposed to notice we're different. That's, that's the point. They're supposed to notice that we're different. The way we live should help people understand what God is like. This is so heavy to me as a parent. Even when I realize that as a dad, I am supposed to be helping my children understand what their heavenly father is like. 
right now they must think their Heavenly Father is pretty cranky. So I need to work on that a little bit. But for everyone in our lives, we, for, we forget sometimes the idea that we're supposed to be revealing Jesus to people by what they see in us. That's the model that Jesus came up with for being a witness to the world. The real and true mark of effective godly living, Jesus says, is the Father being glorified. He says that's the real end result of effective godly living. When it comes to being salt and light, it's important to remember this. You can write this down. And this is encouraging. We weren't told, we were never told to witness. We were told to be a witness. And there's a big difference. And the idea is witnessing is not something we do. It's not the hobby of believers. A witness is something that we are. That's a very, very different thing because when you are a witness, it means all the time, everywhere, you are a representative of Christ. You are a witness to Jesus, for Jesus, of Jesus, all the time. There's no switch you can flick and say, I'm leaving my home, now I need to be a witness. We're a witness all the time. And sometimes that means we talk to somebody about Christ. Sometimes, most of the time, it's just the way we live and act and speak and think. We were never told to witness. We were told to be a witness. That's what Jesus told his own disciples. He said, go be a witness. Be a witness in whatever context you're in. Figure out what that looks like. Verse 17, Jesus says, heavy, heavy statement here. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus is moving into the next section of his message here, and he starts with a disclaimer. He's basically saying, before I get into this next section, you need to know something. I'm not giving you a whole new set of laws. I'm not destroying everything in the Old Testament, like the Ten Commandments. I'm about to explain the true meaning of them, the true significance behind the laws that came through Moses. And Jesus says he came to fulfill all of those laws in the Old Testament. And part of the reason he came to earth was to live a perfect life in our place, and then be punished for our imperfect lives in our place. And that meant that he kept all of these impossible laws perfectly. And that's what Jesus is about to reveal, just how impossible it would be for anybody to fulfill all the laws of God, which are the standard of perfection that God requires. And as we read through this, it should become more and more clear that we had and still have no hope of keeping God's laws perfectly. We had and have no hope outside of Jesus. This whole section, Sermon on the Mount, is going to be incredibly powerful for anyone who's ever thought, I think I can be good enough on my own for God. I think I'm a pretty good person. Jesus is about to completely destroy that argument. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Galatians. He says, therefore the law, this is on your outlines, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So the whole purpose of the law, all these laws, is to make us realize that we need Jesus. That's the whole purpose. This is God saying, if you want to know what the standard is of a good person, here it is. Judge for yourself whether or not you are good according to this standard. And the law shows us plainly that we are not good enough on our own merits. And the incredible news when we have that realization is that Jesus has fulfilled the law for us. And we're no longer condemned by it. We become the children of God, and as the children of God, we desire to bless and please and honor our Heavenly Father. 
And that's why the law is still useful. It tells us how to live in a way that blesses our Heavenly Father. And it tells us the best way to live, period. And this might be helpful. I can write this down. You can divide the Old Testament laws, all the laws in the Old Testament, into ceremonial and moral categories. And here's what you're going to find. In the New Testament, Jesus never condones abandoning the moral laws of the Old Testament, the laws that relate to morality and how we treat each other and God. But the New Testament does preach freedom in the area of ceremonial laws. So Peter had a vision in Acts 10 where he has this blanket sort of coming down full of unclean animals that under ceremonial law he's not allowed to eat. And the voice of God says, take and eat. And the idea is this is a ceremonial law, doesn't apply anymore, there's freedom for that. But right here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is about to reinforce the moral law. Jesus is about to say murder, marriage, divorce, attitude towards parents, all of these things are still valid. And he's actually going to even elevate them even further. And this is important to know because as Christians, we hold to the moral laws, but most Christians get themselves in trouble because someone will come along and say something like, oh, you believe in the Old Testament law. Well, I need to tell you, the Old Testament law says you can't wear mixed fabrics. So that poly cotton blend t-shirt you're rocking, yeah, that's a sin. Eating shellfish, that's a, that's a sin. And this is kind of a favorite go-to argument by several groups right now in our culture. And the way to understand that is to simply say, listen, those are ceremonial laws. What you eat, what you wear, the day you celebrate church on, those are all ceremonial things. They're not moral laws. The ceremonial things have passed away, but the moral laws still stand and were reinforced by Jesus Christ. And that will help you divide between the reason why we discard some Old Testament ceremonial laws and seem to keep others. The division is ceremonial and moral. That's the difference. The difference now is that we live out these moral laws to please and bless God rather than to hopelessly try and earn his approval. Verse 18, it says this, For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one yod or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And I think we need to address the most pressing question, which is what is a tittle? And it's not as exciting as you think, just to let you know that right off the bat. A tittle is a small mark that sometimes wasn't even written, and it went over a vowel in the Hebrew language, and it would tell you how to pronounce that vowel, sort of like a phonetic spelling you might see in a dictionary. It was just a little dash and then a yod is just the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, which was basically, basically like an accent marker, an apostrophe. It's just their expression of saying the dotting of an I or the crossing of a T is what Jesus is saying. He's saying not even the dotting of an I or the crossing of a T has become invalid in the Old Testament. And Jesus is telling us that the New Testament, the new covenant here, is not a replacement of the old one, but rather a fulfillment, a completion of it. Jesus has fulfilled it all for us. Write this down. Both the old and new covenants, the old and new testaments, were written by Jesus. They were written by Jesus through men. And Jesus is not going to contradict himself. He wrote the whole Bible. And he has, it has authority and it's perfect because it came from him. So even though we're not under condemnation from those laws anymore, the underlying truth behind them still stands. And all of the moral laws point to the best way of living and relating to each other. In fact, through Jesus, we're actually able to understand those laws even better now. Jesus' comment is a call from Christ himself to take the Bible very 
very seriously, very seriously. You will never find anybody in the New Testament, including Jesus, playing down the Old Testament as though now in the New Covenant it's not important to us or it doesn't matter. Scripture's only elevated in Scripture. And he expects us to take it very seriously. Something I find interesting is in the Bible, whenever you find someone reading Scripture in the Bible, like you have Daniel reading Jeremiah in Daniel 9, you always find them taking the Bible literally. Scripture is always taken literally in Scripture. And there are cases in the Bible where Jesus uses analogies and metaphors and other rhetorical devices through things like parables. But the starting point you always see in Scripture when you take it seriously is to take the Bible literally unless there's a compelling reason not to, like Jesus is teaching a parable. And I want to point that out to you that that is always our starting point is to believe that Jesus has said what he means and he means what he said. Let's continue in verse 19. He says, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Heavy statement here. Jesus is looking into the future and he's saying, I I know what you guys are going to do. As I teach this new covenant, as I teach grace, as I teach that I fulfilled the law for you, there's going to be people who are just going to run wild with this idea of grace. They're going to say, this means we don't even have to try. This means we can sin. This means we can just follow our flesh and do what we want because there's grace. Grace, amazing, endless, endless grace. And Jesus and the New Testament authors like Paul the Apostle are going to point out that Jesus fulfilling the law and giving us grace should make us want to please him and bless him even more. It shouldn't make us want to essentially spit on him again and take advantage of his sacrifice. It should cause us to want to bless him and love him and please him and honor him. And the New Testament says, listen, if you hear that Jesus died and was beaten for you so that you don't have to be under the law anymore, and your response is to now consciously choose to live a life that is the polar opposite of the way he wants you to live, then perhaps you don't really understand what Jesus has done for you because that's not a logical response. It's not an appropriate response. It's not an acceptable response. So Jesus says, we're not, again, not talking about salvation. He says, you're going to be the least in heaven if you stand up in front of people or influence people in your life as a pastor or as an individual and let them know that, hey, this, this doesn't really matter. Holiness doesn't really matter. Purity doesn't really matter anymore because it's all grace. If you live that way and you teach others to do that, Jesus says there's a consequence for that. You're going to be saved, but there will be a greatest in heaven. There will be a least. The Bible makes that clear. It's all going to be awesome. I don't know about you, but I'd like to be more towards the greater side of heaven. I don't even know what that means or looks like, but I know when I get there, if I live the right kind of life, I'll be really glad that I lived that way. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be there and go, I thought it'd be bigger. You know, I know that's not going to happen. Whatever heavenly rewards are, they're going to be amazing. And I know that people who never lived their lives as though they actually believed there would be rewards, I know they're going to be kicking themselves when they see them. Jesus says, don't run wild with the idea of grace and think that holiness doesn't matter. There will be consequences. Jesus is making it clear that he is the lawgiver and the law interpreter. He's the lawgiver and he's the law interpreter. He's the final authority on his word. And when you understand that, 
You'll be passionate about understanding the truth of God's word. When you don't understand that Jesus is the lawgiver and the law interpreter, when you don't understand that, you will find somebody to interpret the Bible for you the way you want it to be interpreted so that you can live however you want to live. The great fallacy of that is the assumption that we are allowed to interpret God's standards for ourselves. You know, I, I do uh, Taekwondo now, terribly, but I do Taekwondo right now with small children, yeah. And, um, and I was talking to our instructor there, and she's a great, great lady, but we are talking about philosophy. She was talking with my wife, and she said, you know, I have to just sort of merge all the religions together because there's such good stuff in all of them. And the problem with that is always what you should be most concerned with is not is it good. You should be concerned with is it true? Is it true? Is it, I mean, isn't that really the only question that matters when it comes to the supernatural and life after death and God? The question isn't do you like it? Do you think it's nice? The question is, is it true? Is it true? To not have that viewpoint is as crazy as getting a dangerous diagnosis from a doctor about your health and then continuing to go doctor to doctor trying to find a better diagnosis, you don't get one, so you go to your friends and say, can I see your diagnosis? I just want to borrow a few sentences, and I'm going to come up with a diagnosis that I really like. You know what? I I could have this diagnosis of cancer, but I've sort of compiled this other one that says I'm in perfect health, and donuts are good for me. I'm going to go with this one. That's literally what it is like to act as though there is a moral standard and you will be the judge one day of whether or not you met it. It's so self-deluded. To me, it's, it's crazy. So most of the world lives by this idea of there is a moral standard. What is it? Well, I'm going to determine that. Who's going to judge whether or not you kept it? Me. It's literally believing yourself to be God. It's crazy. Jesus says, be careful of that. He says, I gave the law, I interpret it, I judge. There's only going to be one judge. It's going to be Jesus Christ. Verse 20, Jesus says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's unpacking the law here. And Jesus is saying, so you want to be judged by your works. You want to be judged under the law. You want to be judged based on whether or not you're a good person. He says, let me, let me tell you something. You're going to have to do a whole lot better than these guys if you want to pass. And we, we sort of read about the Pharisees and we joke because they're the bad guys of the gospel. But these were the spiritual rock stars of the day. If they had had podcasts, these are the guys that you would all be listening to. It'd be these guys. They were the, the religious celebrities of the day who were fanatically serious about living pure and holy and righteous for God. And Jesus just discards their entire life's purpose with a comment. He says, you're going to have to do better than them. As he points to the men who would have been considered the most holy, most good people on the planet. Jesus says, well, you'll have to do a lot better than them. They used to have a saying that if two men made it to heaven, it'd be a scribe and a Pharisee. Jesus just burns them with that comment. And suddenly everyone is reeling. And this is the Sermon on the Mount. There starts to come this creeping sense over you, just as it came over the hearers of this message in that moment, this creeping feeling of almost despair and darkness and hopelessness. 
Well, if they're not good enough, where does that leave me? We're going to answer that as we go on. But getting us to ask that question is the whole purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is about to begin unpacking the law right now. He's about to reveal how all the laws were intended to focus on the heart first. Because out of a pure heart flows pure behavior. The problem was that people like the scribes and Pharisees were so concerned with the external behaviors, how we acted, that they failed to realize you can do the right things and still be completely jacked up in the heart. You can fake it for a while. And that makes sense, but it leaves us with this impossible problem. Nobody has a pure heart. Nobody has a pure heart. That's really the problem. Hey, just, you know, have a pure heart, and then pure actions will follow. Asterisk. Look at the bottom of the page. Nobody has a pure heart. That's a big, big problem. Anybody want to stand up and say, I I have a totally pure heart and mind. Nailed it. If I didn't have to preach, I'd be sitting down too because I shouldn't be standing right now. The prophet Isaiah always keeps it real. And this is what Isaiah says. He says, but we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Like filthy rags under the law. That's what Isaiah says. He says, listen, the best things that you've done that you thought were the most noble, the most moral, compared to God's standard, they're like filthy rags. They're meaningless if you want to be judged under the law. We're going to find that when we are under grace, even those humble acts now have significance and get us things like eternal rewards in heaven. But that's under grace. Jesus is talking about what it's like to try and get to heaven by being a good person. To restate the problem, true righteousness, being right with God, comes from a pure heart, but nobody has a pure heart. That's a problem. This reality is taught by Jesus, explains why being a good person cannot save you. None of us has a pure enough heart to even try being saved by our works. We have to understand this. The picture is that the river is contaminated at the source. The source of our lives is the heart. And Jesus says there's nobody who has a pure heart. So you're trying to get clean water out of a dirty well. It's never going to happen, ever. It's a heart problem. The solution that God offers us is a righteousness that is not our own. It's the righteousness of Jesus. The Bible never talks about fixing or healing a heart. It talks about being given a completely new heart. That's the picture Jesus wants us to have. You know, even all the way back in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, it says this about Abraham, who's called the father of the faith. It says, he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, accounted it to him, Abraham, for righteousness. So Abraham was considered righteous for one reason. He believed in God. He believed in God. God says, that's what makes you righteous. Because Jesus went out and got righteousness for him and for us. And now we can claim it as our own by simply believing in Jesus. And here's the amazing thing. All those Old Testament saints, if you've ever thought, man, what what happens to these guys? How are they saved before Jesus died on the cross? They're saved the same way we are, which is by faith. We know the name of the Savior God provided. We know it's Jesus. They didn't know his name, but they believed God would send somebody. They had faith in what was to come. We have faith in what God has done, and they were saved by faith just like we are. In the New Testament, in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul writes this. He says, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. 
That's you and I. His faith is accounted for righteousness. Jesus is going to make it clear that it's impossible for us to be righteous any other way than through him. Whether you're a believer or not, everyone in this room has one thing in common. We have one thing in common. We're all guilty of failing to meet God's standards. Every single one of us, without exception, none of us are good enough people to make it to heaven on our own merits. We tend to compare ourselves with others and then form an opinion based on how good we are. And I mean, we never, when we do that comparison, we never pick anybody who's like a nicer person than us. You know, nobody sits around thinking, you know, compared to Mother Teresa, you know, nobody does that. We always find somebody who's worse than us and compare ourselves and go, (laughs) I'm a pretty good person. You know, at least I'm not them. The Sermon on the Mount reminds us that ultimately we'll only be compared to one person, Jesus Christ. He's the standard, and we all fall short of it. And the Sermon on the Mount is meant to drive us to Jesus where we receive the best news we ever could, that he has given us his righteousness. He's fulfilled the law for us. He's even taken our punishment in our place. And if we're studying this right, we should start finding ourselves just inside thinking, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I I had no shot. And then Jesus continues in verse 21. He says, you have heard. And when he says this phrase, you have heard, he's not changing what the Old Testament says. He's saying, you've heard this from your rabbis, your teachers, but what they're telling you is wrong. They've misinterpreted the text. So Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause, in other words, argumentative, shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Raka simply means empty-headed. Don't add that to your vocabulary. I know it's tempting. It means empty-headed. So so get this. This is Jesus now saying, oh, you you think you understand the commandment, thou shalt not murder? let, Let me unpack it for you. He's telling his disciples that the attitude that leads to verbal abuse is the same attitude that leads to murder. The attitude that leads to verbal abuse is the same internal attitude that leads to murder. It begins the same way in the heart. Jesus is saying what the law prohibits is the internal attitude, the attitude of the heart, not just the act of murder. That's just what flows out of that. So in God's moral system, the attitude that causes us to call someone an idiot or think someone an idiot carries the same moral guilt as the act of murder. That's the standard of God's laws. Everybody say, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh. Everybody should be saying that. This is the part of my message this week where I was prepping. I was studying. Then I had to take something to the mail, hopped in my car, drove to the mail parking lot. The person was parked in a very unintelligent way, and I immediately thought, like, you freaking idiot. Five minutes after I was studying this, right, I got a heart problem. I got a major, major heart problem. There's a place in the life of the believer for anger. There is such a thing as righteous anger. We see it in Jesus when he clears the temple. And everything in the Old Testament is a physical picture of things that happen spiritually in the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, we see in the Psalms, David just prays like the most violent prayers half the time. He says things like, Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. So that's a picture of physical violence against our enemies. That it, that's righteous. It's righteous. 
So what does that look like in the New Testament? What does violence rooted in righteous anger look like for us? The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians, Ephesians 6, 12, he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul says in the New Testament, listen, the rules of engagement have changed. You're not fighting a physical enemy. You're fighting a spiritual enemy now. This means that we don't vent our righteous anger at people. It means now we get violence in the spiritual world. We pray, we intercede, we fast, we proclaim God's word. That's how we fight as Christians. That's righteous anger. Beware of unrighteous anger where we attack the person rather than the real enemy, which is Satan. Verse 23 Jesus goes on and he says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So this verse isn't saying you need to track down everybody who has something against you. I don't know about you, I don't have that much free time. It's not what he's saying. Jesus is saying that when we find ourselves in the place of worship or prayer, when you find yourself studying the word of God at home or in church and the Holy Spirit impresses a person or a relationship onto your spirit, Jesus is saying, listen, you literally need to drop what you're doing and go make it right with that person because that is the Holy Spirit, as we've talked about before, saying, whoa, 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 before we talk about anything else, you need to go make this right. We need to deal with this. We need to bring healing here. So Jesus is saying you're under obligation to the Holy Spirit in those moments to go and ask for forgiveness, to seek restoration, whatever you need to do to make it right. You need to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in those moments. Verse 25, he goes on and he says, agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. In this context, an adversary would be your opponent in a legal matter, in a law case. And in Jesus' day, the plaintiff would have to physically get the defendant into the courtroom in front of the judge. So if you wanted to take someone to court, you would have to um, compel them to join you in the courtroom. And so the picture here, Jesus is saying, is you and I finding ourselves on the road. We've been captured by our adversary. We're the defendant. They're the plaintiff. They are taking us, tied up, whatever, to the judge. We're on our way to the courtroom. Jesus says, if you're smart, you'll figure out how to settle the matter quickly. You'll ask for forgiveness. You'll apologize. You'll make restitution. You'll cut a deal. Because if you don't, the judge might throw you in prison. And things could get a lot worse a lot faster. The prison we're talking about is what would be known as debtor's prison. And if you owed somebody a debt, you would be thrown in prison until you could pay it back if you had violated the terms of the contract. What's the cruel irony of that? How are you supposed to pay back the debt when you're in prison? You would be completely at the mercy of somebody outside of prison helping you. That's the point Jesus is making. If you let a dispute become a big deal by not dealing with it immediately and with humility, you'll never escape it. And haven't we all found this to be true? 
If you're married, I don't even need to ask you. We've all done this if we're married, right? We find ourselves in a dispute or a standoff because of pride, because of ego, and things got way bigger than they ever should have. If you're married, you've had those arguments where you get so mad because you can't actually remember what the argument is about. You just remember that you're going to win, right? Win what? I, I don't know. That's, of course, the great fallacy of marriage, right? You know, as, as a husband, you win the argument and then you get into bed with somebody who's furious at you. I won, right? <laughs> In the kingdom of Jesus, there's no room for bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness, pride, or stubbornness. But luckily, none of us have a problem with those things, right? No problem. Jesus says you deal with it quickly and humbly. There's no room for pride and dispute in the kingdom of God. Then he goes on and he says, now no, he's really going to elevate it. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's elevating the Old Testament law, the moral law. Write this down. Jesus is saying that the attitude that causes you to lust after somebody is the same attitude that leads to adultery. Starts the same way in the same place. Sounds harsh, but nobody in this room would disagree with that because we all know it's true. Our culture seems to disagree. We seem to think we can dabble in sexual immorality, but Jesus tells us the truth. He says, hey, dabbling is just full-blown adultery in its infancy. Same thing, just at a different stage of development. It's all about the attitude of the heart. We've all thought people were idiots, so we're all murderers under the law. We've all looked at another person lustfully, so we're all adulterers under the law. Jesus goes on and he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you than one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, if this were really something Jesus wanted us to do, every Christian man would be walking around with no eyes, me included. And if you're a man and you disagree, then you're an adulterer and a liar, okay? Jesus <laughs> is not actually advocating self-mutilation. He's just revealed that lust is the real issue behind adultery, right? The heart issue. He's not actually advocating self-mutilation because he's just re- told us that the issue begins in the heart. And cutting off parts of your body is not going to solve that problem. But there are two things we can take from what Jesus is saying. He wants us to understand, listen, if you try to get to heaven by being a good enough person you're ultimately going to find it's going to lead to very hopeless and very dark behavior because you'll become more and more desperate in your attempts and it will lead to ridiculous behavior like self-mutilation as you realize that your own flesh, your own body is working against you in your attempt to be righteous. You'll get in a very dark place. Just to put this in context, when I say dark, dark and hopeless places, This is what it would look like in our world if you tried to be good enough for God. You would try and find some sort of community or building or place you could live that was far away from people in isolation where you wouldn't have to have contact with anybody and would hope that by isolating yourself somehow and trying to stay away from everything evil that that would somehow make you good enough. And it doesn't because the issue is in the heart. It's not even related to your environment. The issue begins in the heart. 
Secondly, we get a sense of how serious sin is. Just because Jesus has covered us with his righteousness doesn't mean Jesus is now cool with sin. He's not cool with sin now. He hates sin because of its destructive power in us and on our lives. He hates it. He loves us. We should take from what Jesus said that he wants us to deal seriously with sin. I've said this before. Listen, if you can't own a cell phone without looking at things you shouldn't be looking at and doing things you shouldn't be doing, it's better to not have a cell phone. It's better. The same is true for TV, computers, even relationships. If you can't have something without it causing you to sin, Jesus would say, you might need to cut that out of your life. It would be better to be a little less tech savvy if it meant living in greater holiness. It would be better to have a few less friends if it meant living in greater holiness. It would be better to fall behind in pop culture, heaven forbid, if it means living in greater holiness. It would be better. Jesus expects us to have that attitude about living for him. Now I have to say that I've, I've saved the most difficult part of the message for last and I've really wrestled with this text this week. I, I've prayed, I've poured over the text and I still feel that whatever I share is most likely going to be inadequate in some way. And if it is, I apologize in advance, but I have to try and teach this as faithfully as I can, especially after Jesus reminded me that if I didn't, I'm going to be the least in the kingdom of heaven. So I'm more scared of God than I am of anybody else. So I'm going to do my best to be faithful to his word, uh, as always. This next section is heavy and is deeply personal for many people uh, because many people's lives have been touched by divorce in some way. There's a lot of room to get this wrong, and so it's really important that we, we do whatever we need to do uh, to try and understand it. So if I go five minutes long today, it's really important. Uh, verse 31, Jesus says, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, Jesus is referring to a text in Deuteronomy where Moses gave the law, and it was being interpreted by different rabbis different ways. In that passage of Scripture, Moses shares that the only acceptable situation for divorce in the eyes of God is marital unfaithfulness. And I don't want to be ambiguous here so that anybody can say things that I sometimes hear like they were being emotionally unfaithful. It's talking about sexual, physical, marital unfaithfulness, cheating on your spouse with another person. That's what it's talking about. No confusion on that. In that instance, divorce by God was permitted but not required. If a husband or wife were unfaithful to their spouse, the divorce certificate would allow the innocent spouse to remarry because it would prove to their next spouse that they had not been the cause of their divorce. In that instance, the innocent spouse was permitted to remarry and their second marriage was not considered adulterous. Uh, let me also say this. While divorce in the case of marital unfaithfulness was and is permitted, it was and is not God's desire. God's desire in that situation is always repentance and restoration. God desires that the offender would genuinely repent, which doesn't mean say sorry, it means change. God's desire is that the offender would change and that the offended would respond to that repentance with forgiveness and that the end result of those things would be restoration. That's God's desire, even though he permits divorce in that situation. And sadly, that often doesn't happen because the offender is not truly repentant. They say sorry, but they don't really change. 
or the offended is unforgiving. It's just something they feel they can't let go of, they can't forgive, they can't move past. And I don't say this as though forgiving adultery is a light and easy thing. I don't think it's that way at all. I think that goes without saying. The Pharisees at this time, the guys who were interpreting this text from Deuteronomy, were really in two camps. There was a teacher named Shammai and a teacher named Hillel. And those who followed Shammai were very conservative. And they said, based on what Deuteronomy 24 says, divorce can only be granted in the case of uncleanness, which they interpreted as sexual immorality or adultery. That's the only case it can happen. The followers of Hillel were very liberal, saying uncleanness is much broader than just uh, adultery or immorality. For example, if a woman puts too much salt and pepper on her husband's eggs, which made him lose his temper, well, she had made him sin and therefore was unclean, a legitimate reason for divorce. Or if a man saw a woman who was more righteous or virtuous than his wife, he had the right to divorce her because she was now unclean by comparison. So the followers of Shammai said a written bill of divorce must be given. The followers of Hillel said that all that was required for the husband was to look at his wife and say, I divorce you three times. True story, if you do that in front of a mirror in the dark, a woman will come out and slap you. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding, not a true thing. Consequently, not unlike today, divorce was occurring for the most frivolous of reasons. And obviously, both teachers has their followers based on <laughs> whether or not they were trying to keep their spouses or leave their spouses would be my guess. You know, you sort of imagine the followers of Shammai saying, there's something about this teacher that just, just resonates with my spirit and the fact that I want to leave my wife. Verse 32, Jesus goes on and now he says, but I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery we're going to unpack this here so remember jesus is revealing the fullness of the old testament law he's revealing what god's standards really are so that we will come to the logical conclusion we do not want to be judged based on those standards we want to be judged in our belief in jesus we need help we need saving so the first thing we need to understand is how seriously God takes sex being exclusively between a husband and a wife. He takes it so seriously, that's the only condition, the only time that he allows and permits divorce is when that is broken. God and the Bible holds a much more elevated view of sex than our culture and society does. It's a total myth when people say things like, well, you know, Christianity kind of puts down sex. It's like, no, 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 no. We believe it's far more important than our culture does. Jesus and the Bible make it clear that sex in marriage is a binding agent between husband and wife. They literally become one in the eyes of God. It's not less significant than what the world says. It's so much more significant. And when you examine what the text is actually saying, you can't come to any other conclusion than it says that in effect... When a divorce occurs for a reason other than adultery and the couple leaves for new partners in marriage, they are, in fact, committing adultery that one time in the act of sexually coming together with new partners. And Jesus is teaching this, keep this in mind, with the assumption that divorced people will remarry. He's teaching it with that assumption. He doesn't say that they continue to live in adultery. 
But he says that as a new union is formed between divorced people, the sin of adultery takes place under the Old Testament law. It's a singular event, not a continual state of being. So what do we do with that? What do you do with that? Well, I think firstly we recognize that there's sin, there's sin all over the place when divorce takes place. There's sin in the anger that leads to the breakdown of the marriage. There's sin in the unforgiveness that may be present. There's sin in giving up on the marriage. There's sin in refusing to reconcile. There's sin in the legal divorce itself. And there's, there's sin when either person remarries as well. There's just sin everywhere. And we're going to unpack this more, but don't forget, we've all looked at someone with lust, and so we're pretty much all in agreement that we're already all adulterers under the law. So just remember that nobody has the moral high ground here besides Jesus. Nobody has the moral high ground besides Jesus. In light of that, how are we supposed to view the issue of divorce today? One, we need to know that God takes marriage extremely seriously. He takes it extremely seriously. Those vows on our wedding day, he expects us to actually keep them for our whole lives. He expects marriage to be a commitment that we keep because he designed it to be the greatest discipleship tool in our lives. And early on in your marriage, you learn more about God because you think, I totally get how this is a discipleship tool. I'm being so gracious in overlooking all of my spouse's faults, just like Jesus is gracious to me. I totally get it, God. And then after a little while, you begin to realize that your spouse is really the one being gracious to you and faithful to you even when you don't deserve it. And God designed marriage to be a reflection of his faithfulness and commitment to us. He designed it to model that for the world. That's why he takes marriage so seriously. He says, you're not just representing yourself, you're representing me and the kind of commitments that are made in my kingdom. He says, that's a big, big deal. He's not into the idea of divorcing when you realize you don't like each other or would prefer somebody else. He's not into throwaway commitments. Jesus is the embodiment of commitment and he expects us to be like him. God's solution for marriage, you want to write this down, his solution for marriage problems is repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. Repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. That's his desire, that's his plan. And as I've said before, we have to acknowledge the fact that sometimes that's not always possible. Sometimes there can't be a restoration because there's not real real repentance, there's not real change. Sometimes there's not real forgiveness. If you're ever in that situation or you're in that situation, just make sure you're doing your part. If you're the one that needs to repent, you repent. If you're the one that needs to forgive, you forgive. While understanding that if the other person has not truly repented, it can't really be restoration. There can be forgiveness, but there's no restoration without real repentance. So I'm not asking you to give somebody a free pass who's abusing you or anything like that. You'd be wise about that. Just saying recognize your part in it and trust God in that. And secondly, you need to know that there's grace when we've made a giant mess of our marriages. There's grace. You know, sometimes one person quits on the marriage and there's nothing the other person can do. The person who finds themselves in that situation is not helping the cause by refusing to sign the divorce papers. That's not bringing healing to the marriage. You pray You beg, you plead, you seek reconciliation, repentance from them if you need it. You repent if you need to. But sometimes there can't be reconciliation because the other person's just not up for it. They're not willing to do what it takes for there to be reconciliation. 
And when one person leaves, you can't stop them. You can't stop them. But if that situation plays out, the Apostle Paul in the Bible implies that that person is released from the marriage. They're released from the marriage. And, he, and here's what I mean. Because you say, well, if you're released, how can it be a sin when you come together with another person? And th- this is how, how the law of God works, how perfect it is. God is saying, li- listen, somebody says, listen, my, my husband's beating me. I, I got to leave him. And I, and I hear all the time pastors saying, there's you know, legitimate grounds for divorce like this or this or this. But even in the area of divorce, sometimes we know what we want to hear. We know what will be popular. We know what will be unpopular. And there's a tendency to teach that. Under the law of God, even a person who's being beaten, that divorce is sin. Now, is the person who's doing the beating sinning? Heck yeah, they're sinning. Does them sinning make the other person leaving the marriage not a sin? No, that's a sin and that's a sin. This is why it's really good that we are under grace because the person who's being beaten by an unrepentant spouse needs to leave that marriage. They do. Even though that means they will have to sin to do it. That's where grace comes in, in situations like that. When the person then wants to remarry, is it still sin? Because God still recognizes that first commitment. Is it sin when they join with that other person? Yes. Are we glad that there's grace to cover that? Yes. Yes, we are. And from all of this, what we're supposed to do is just come to the place of realizing in every area of our lives, in our thought life, in our heart life, in our relationships, we don't have a chance. We don't have a chance of being good enough on our own. Even the things that we think are justifiable most of the time are rooted in sin. It should make us realize our desperate need for Jesus. And, and let me say this to anyone who's dealing with divorce or, is, or, or who has dealt with it. When you understand this, what it should do is it should cause there to be some holy grief over the breakdown of the marriage. Even in a case where a person is abusing another person, there should be grief there that it ever got to that point. That somewhere along the line, there was a breakdown of something God designed to be a good thing and as people has just become hopeless. So when a person leaves a marriage and there's no remorse, there's no regret, there's no sadness, that's not acknowledging the fact that God is heartbroken over what has taken place. And it's a tragedy. Anytime a marriage dissolves, it is a tragedy. It's a tragedy. It's never what any of us hoped for or thought would happen when we get into marriage. I want to share this with you. Paul, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, was one of the most devout Jews who ever lived. The ruling religious council in Israel was the Sanhedrin. And in order to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. So Paul would have been married. And that's significant because we never, ever hear anything about Paul's wife in the Bible. He has a Damascus Road encounter with Jesus. He goes into Damascus. His sight is restored. After that, he goes into the Arabian Desert for three years, gets his theology right, goes straight on to the mission field. No sign of his wife. Bible scholars are in general agreement that what happened is Paul's wife did not convert to Christianity. She didn't convert. She didn't want to give up her place of being a part of the cultural elite in Israel at that time, going from being someone who was admired to being an outcast among her own people. And she didn't make the leap along with Paul. And she left Paul. She divorced Paul. And so Paul becomes a single guy again. And then something uh, very interesting happens. 
when Paul writes his first letter to the Corinthians, he addresses some gray areas for Christians. These are areas where the Bible doesn't specifically tell us what to do, but it gives us freedom. Examples would be, hey, what day do you celebrate the Sabbath on? There's freedom. It's a gray area. Can you eat meat that was sacrificed to idols before it was sold? It's a gray area. And in all these things, Paul essentially says, you've got to be led by the Holy Spirit. And he said the Holy Spirit is going to lead people differently. So you don't let anybody look down on you because of how the Holy Spirit leads you in those areas. You don't look down on anybody else over how the Holy Spirit leads them in those areas. And then after addressing these issues, he addresses some gray areas that apply to him and Barnabas, his traveling partner. Because some people, probably Jews who had become Christians, were saying, listen, there's some of these gray areas that you need to do specific things in Paul. And one of them was they were saying, Paul, just keep in mind, you, you can't get married again. You've already been married once, so it'll be adultery if you get married. Paul the Apostle says this in 1 Corinthians. He says to them, his critics, do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Peter? Peter's point is simple, that he he had the right to remarry after being divorced and marry a believer. He was released from his previous marriage because his wife had left him. It was out of his control. The Apostle Paul believed there was grace for him to remarry and that he should be afforded that opportunity based on the grace of Jesus. And sometimes we realize too late that we've sinned terribly and and destroyed our marriage and it's too late to fix it. The divorce has been finalized. The other person has moved on. They might have married someone else. In those instances, we can still go back and apologize and seek forgiveness. And we should. And I hope hope you're hearing my heart in all of this. I've I've heard it expressed very well that grace is for falling. It's not for jumping. I love that. Grace is for falling. It's not for jumping. What that means is do not be cheating on your spouse right now while thanking God for his grace. That's not what grace is for. Don't be actively holding unforgiveness over your spouse as your marriage dissolves. And then be thinking, I'm glad there's grace that allows me to be unforgiving. Because that's not what grace is for. Grace is for those moments where we realize we've fallen. And we need to get back up. And we might get a little dirty as we're getting back up again. There's grace for that. But if you've made a mess and it's too late to fix it, there's grace. And it's only because of Jesus. In closing, I'm just going to say a couple of quick things. You know, it was the desire of Jesus that his disciples find themselves thinking, I'm screwed. I can't, I can't live up to this. In fact, I failed in most of these areas just today. I have no hope of being good enough for God's moral standards. And if the disciples were thinking that, it was because they were being honest with themselves. And if they're being honest with themselves, the result of that would be the attitude that Jesus taught first last week in the Beatitudes the attitude of being poor in spirit, viewing oneself as being in spiritual poverty. The Sermon on the Mount reveals the problem that Jesus came to the earth to solve. This is the beginning of the gospel, realizing how desperately we need a Savior. We need someone to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And what did Jesus say would come to those who realize they're poor in spirit? He said, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is yours once you realize that you can't be good enough on your own and you need me. If there was any other way for us to be with God, then Jesus' prayer on the night he was betrayed was for nothing. Jesus prays three different times, Father, if there be any other way, let it be so. And there's no other way. Jesus has to go to the cross. And I know 
that Jesus' prayer was not answered for a reason. And the reason is there was no other way. Around the time of Jesus, people who were thrown in jail, as I, as I mentioned, were assigned a debt. And it could be a debt of money they owed, but it could also be a debt to society. That debt could be expressed in the form of money or, or years in prison or torture. And the jailer would keep track of your debt and how much you had paid off. And if you escaped, he would inherit the responsibility of paying your debt. But when their debt was fully paid, the person would receive documentation, a, a document of their debt with the word tetelestai stamped on it. And tetelestai just means paid in full. This document would protect them from double jeopardy, from being charged for the same crime again. But what Jesus did is he walked up to our jail cell and released us from captivity, knowing full well that all of our debts would be transferred to him. All of them. He'd have to pay for all of them. He took our debts. The Bible says the wages, the punishment, the debt of sin is death. And so Jesus said, I'll pay that too. I'll pay that. The word tetelestai is the word Jesus spoke from the cross, which we commonly interpret as it is finished. And so from the cross, right before he gives up his life, Jesus spoke a phrase with two incredible meanings. It is finished and paid in full. Paid in full. And this incredible grace that we've received from Jesus makes us want to live for him all the more. As Jesus said, when you've been forgiven much, you will love much. We want to be holy and righteous, not because we're scared of sin, but because we love the one who has made us holy and righteous. It's not a burden anymore. We do it because we love him for what he's done for us. So today I would be remiss if I didn't ask us all to examine our lives and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal whether or not there's any areas in our lives where we're taking righteousness lightly. And if so, we need to repent. We need to change today. And I'd also be remiss if I didn't encourage us all to thank Jesus for what he's done for us, that Jesus did for you what you could not do for yourself. He did it for you. To Tetelestai, paid in full. Paid in full. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? I want to pray for you. Father, I pray that, God, you would open our hearts to see what you see when you look at us, God. And what you see is people who've been made righteous, through your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that you would reveal to us any area of our lives where we're not showing you the gratitude that you deserve for your amazing love for us, for your sacrifice, for paying our debts, God. And Father, more than anything, we just want to tell you thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. We need you so much. We love you, God. 